Welcome back to the Laser 101 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Walensky, the laser dentist. And here we go again. Another week, another icon in dentistry. And I know you may be feeling like I'm overusing the word icon, but wait until you hear who we have with us this week. Dr. John Featherstone, the one and the only, and as he says, the infamous. John Featherstone has a legitimate list of accolades few people can match. He's the Dean Emeritus of the School of Dentistry at UCSF, which mean he means he was the Dean, and also Professor Emeritus of Preventive and Restorative Dental Sciences, also at UCSF. He holds a PhD in chemistry from the University of Wellington, which is in New Zealand. And his research over the past, get this, 48 years has covered several aspects of cariology. He was one of the uh, scientists who established how fluoride really works. You know, we thought we knew, but we didn't know. Just like we used to think we knew how periodontal disease worked and how it progressed, but we were wrong. And Dr. Featherstone was um, principal in, in um, explaining what really went on with fluoride. Uh, he's also a pioneer in research on laser interactions with uh, heart tissue. So his work has actually led to development in marketing of new lasers that have advanced our field of laser dentistry. So those of you who, um, who are familiar with Canberra, uh, carries management by risk assessment. John Featherstone actually spearheaded the development of Canberra, and that's actually how we met many years ago. And he did this at UCSF, and he's currently still active in encouraging the implementation of Canberra in several venues across the world. John has received, I'm not going to list them, but every major national and international award having to do with dental research from the American Dental Association, IADR, the Academy of Laser Dentistry and others. And, you know, when you realize that he's written over 320 papers and book chapters, it's no wonder why. So as I said, an icon, welcome to uh, the Laser 101 podcast, John. Hi there. Hi, you know what? Uh, I wanted to start, you know, we have so many important things to discuss, but I wanted to start with something that it's important to me, but maybe not important uh, in the overall scheme of things. Back in, my gosh, it was probably 2005, six, seven, something like that, uh, you were invited to speak a keynote at the um, World Congress of Minimally Invasive Dentistry. I think even back then it may have been called the, uh, the something, the Minimally Invasive uh, Dentistry Group or something like that. And my <laughs> recollection is, oh my gosh, I'm going to get to meet John Featherstone. And, you know, here's this guy that like he, you were invited at the time because of your work in cariology in Canberra. And, and we were working along the West Coast to bring Canberra into the dental schools. And somehow you and I ended up on the stage and I was playing piano and you were playing spoons. I, I, do you remember this? I sure do. I, I've played the spoons uh, at many venues around the world with numerous bands over the years. Uh, I also play the piano, but not, um, I'm a classical pianist rather than uh, the pianist that you are. Oh, that, it was it was incredible. I'd, I'd never actually 
you know, I've seen spoon players on on television, but they they typically didn't have all their teeth, and uh, you were just it, it was such a, a disparity between here here's this guy who has moved our industry forward, me, industry meaning dentistry, and then he's up there playing the spoons. Um, you know, I I remember also kind of often on topic here. You have some really interesting hobbies in uh and and one i remember is uh, have have you done some serious mountain climbing yes i have uh, depends how you define serious but that's been my principal hobby for a long time uh, i retired a few years ago when i was having difficulty climbing the stairs rather than climbing mountains but <laughs> yes i've i've spent a lot of time in the mountains either climbing mountains or falling down them or whatever what is, what is your uh what's your biggest quest or or, or i guess accomplishment uh with biggest mountain you've climbed or you're something you're proud of well that's a, a good question uh interestingly enough a couple of years ago i went skiing at the uh, matterhorn area in zermatt in switzerland yes and i looked up at the matterhorn and realized that it was 45 years since I climbed that particular mountain. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's, it's one of the icons of mountain climbing. It's Absolutely. technically challenging, but not technically severe. And I look back uh, 45 years before the time I climbed it, and there were two Japanese climbers who I had met on the summit who fell past me on the way down. Uh, we were slowly picking our way down and they fell past us down the east face and of course uh they they met their death oh so, my goodness uh no mountain is, is trivial oh absolutely not i what an experience um i we actually have another guest coming up in a couple of weeks who i believe um he was in at kilimanjaro uh a, a couple of years ago so we're, we're going to continue our mountain climbing uh discussion at some point uh one last thing before we really get into this serious uh discussion uh i just see because we're on zoom and uh, that you have quite an amazing uh collection of of pottery and it doesn't seem to be just from one um uh, location or one type. Uh, how long have you been collecting? I've been collecting pottery probably for 50 years now from various countries around the world. And I've got two display cabinets with it. And when my kids were growing up, they said, Dad, it's like living in a museum. So I have pieces of pottery, uh, reproductions and originals from around the world. And my oldest piece is a uh, 2,000-year-old Roman pot from an excavation in Jerusalem and Israel. So I know I know that you have some uh, background in archaeology. Were you, was this something that you found, or is this something that you acquired some other way? Uh, I actually bought it, and I don't remember how much it cost, but <laughs> my then wife was, uh, shall we say, disturbed at the fact that I would spend that much money of our uh, limited resources on such a piece, but I still have it. I don't have the wife anymore, but I have the pot. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> an excellent lesson to be learned. Um, so, all right. So let's get get back to this. Uh, many of my discussions with uh, you, you guys, you, you icons, are, are back into the '80s, and I, I realize that uh, you're one of the earliest to actually use lasers in, um, you know, a dental area. Uh, unlike, you know, um, doing soft tissue, and then and you're doing it actually on dental. I mean, hard tissue. I, when I say dental, I mean I'm meaning hard tissue. And even now, just this week, I saw someone do a paper on. Um, uh, hardening effects of, uh, you know, of, of enamel using different wavelengths. And I, I know that you guys, uh, I think it was you and, and uh, Freed were, were originals in uh, kind of um, in hardening uh, of the enamel. Is that right? Uh, that is that is true. Uh, as you may or may not know, I was born in New Zealand and grew up there and went to England for a few years and back to New Zealand. And I did my PhD there in the chemistry of dental caries, in fact. And uh, one of the things that I did was to work on the chemistry of hydroxyapatite, or should I say carbonated hydroxyapatite. And uh, therefore, I had a considerable in-depth knowledge of how all of the ions in the mineral fit together. And in 1980, when I, I came to the US, uh, to Rochester, New York, to University of Rochester and Eastman Dental Center. One of the people that I first met there was a physicist who had turned to dentistry. And he said, I've read a couple of interesting papers. And there were only, I think, three or so in existence at that time uh, on lasers interacting with dentistry. And what people did at that point is when lasers were invented in the 60s, they used whatever laser they stumbled across and and fired it at whatever they wanted to see what would happen. And I was fascinated in this, and I said, hey, I know what the ideal laser would be. And I walked over to the Laboratory for Laser Energetics, a, a huge laser facility in Rochester, New York, and they were doing then uh, laser fusion studies, and they still are. And I made an appointment as a young faculty member with the director of this huge lab, which people frowned upon. You just don't do that stuff. And I talked to him about my ideas and he said, hey, we've got a tunable carbon dioxide laser in the basement that we don't use anymore. Would you like it? <laughs> I sure. said, oh, sure. <laughs> so uh, Christmas Eve in 1980, uh, Jack Wilson, who was the the assistant uh, director of that lab and I did the first experiments. This is 1980, December 24th. We did the first experiments with a tunable carbon dioxide laser to see uh, what the interaction would be with synthetic uh, carbonated appetite and how it would, would change. And that was the beginning of my career in lasers and dentistry before lasers were even thought about for use in dentistry. Absolutely. So, so your start was in cariology, and then you wanted to see the app if there were any applications of using lasers in in that um, area. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before I got into dentistry, uh, I was in industry and in pharmaceutical industry, and very much interested in taking whatever happened in the lab and putting it into practice. So my thinking in my career now of almost 50 years in dentistry is, is how to apply what we know in the real world. And 
uh, that that was the start of numerous experiments. We we wrote a grant. Uh, I collaborated with a couple of high-powered people in Rochester. We wrote a grant, submitted to the National Institutes of Health, and it got rejected. It said that this idea is totally stupid and uh, forget it. And at that point, we wanted to be able to ablate enamel, and we wanted to be able to change the enamel to inhibit dental caries from progressing. That were, those were our two aims in 1981. <laughs> I, too, was called stupid. It was in um, Killarney, uh, Ireland, at the, uh, I think, Irish Dental Association meeting, and I, I showed the application of using uh, lasers in hard tissue. And when I came off the stage, uh, one of these um, you know high-profile cosmetic dentist came to me and said this was an absolutely ridiculous use of this technology and um, he said a lot of other things and so 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 when you started did you have a, a goal or a dream in mind for what you wanted to accomplish i wanted to be able to change the mineral and to drive off the carbonate content which is there naturally and transform the mineral into hydroxyapatite which was a thousand times less soluble and to thereby make that mineral uh, resistant to tooth decay. And at the same time, by learning how lasers interacted with the mineral of teeth and bones, to be able to uh, remove early carious lesions uh, specifically, and to be able to treat the surrounding area and make it resistant to future decay. That was our, our dream back in 1980, 1981. And I collaborated with several people during the 1980s. And that was a time when there were uh, a couple of people in the Netherlands, and particularly uh, Tim Bosch. Uh, and we, between us, we characterized laser interactions with hard tissues with pretty much all the wavelengths that existed at that point in time. Now, I find it interesting because your uh, research approach seemed to go in, in two different directions. One was ablative, you know, what can we do with this laser to actually uh, remove small decay and that sort of thing. But also the subablative, the symmetries that would be required to change the mineral hardness and be able to, um, you know, be more resistant to attack from acids, et cetera. So I, I find that, uh, that that was actually probably a really novel um, way of thinking at that time. It, it sure was. And then in the late 80s, when Terry Myers came along and others with the uh, Neodymium Miag laser, we looked at that and said, well, you know, that happens to be the laser that he's using. And he and others got that marketed. And based on our work, it was, it was the most inefficient laser possible to interact with hard tissues. And of course, you had to carbonize the tip or use... Um, some sort of uh, pigment to stimulate the, the interaction. And we knew what would work, but the companies basically weren't particularly interested at that point. And you know, fast forward to the early 1990s, when I did write another grant together with a laser energetics fellow called uh, Wolf Seeker, and we brought on board a postdoc by the name of Daniel Freed. And he, he was the one who... Uh, did a lot more of the characterization work and uh, went on to really push the uh, ablation side and very efficient ablation with very, very low energy uh, using a 9.3 or 9.6 micron laser rather than 10.6. At the same time, there was 
a friend and colleague called Raymond Hipst in Germany who was looking at, in a very similar way to us, looking at what lasers would interact with the heart tissue. And he realized that the erbium YAG laser would interact with the water content and the OH ions in the mineral, and that could be used for ablation. So that was all parallel work. And he and I became very good friends. And in fact, we even looked similar and we've had some fun at meetings over the years, swapping name tags and <laughs> confusing people. So, you know, I, I make that point because human interactions are, are critical to success and critical to swapping ideas. And uh, that's what science really is all about. We used to write letters to each other, if you can believe that. Uh, no electronic, no, you know, uh, Wi-Fi, none of that stuff. You wrote letters and you went to meetings and you sat down and forged collaborations with people. Yes, that's right. So here we are almost 50 years after your initial research. And as simple as uh, the concept is and, uh, you know, of actually using a laser energy to alter the um, the, the minerals, um, what do you feel is maybe your group's greatest um, contribution to this field? I think probably in three areas. One is the fundamental understanding of laser tissue interactions, not just hard tissue, but soft tissue. And even yet, people forget that in order for a laser to interact with a tissue, it has to be absorbed by the tissue. And if the absorption characteristics of the tissue don't match the laser, then don't even try. But as I look in the literature now, there are people trying this and trying that. Well, if they put their brain into gear and read the literature, they wouldn't even try to do what they do. So we made a, a systematic contribution by looking at numerous wavelengths and looking at interaction with the phosphate groups, the carbonate groups, the water, uh, not just hard tissue, but of course with soft tissue interaction with pigments. And of course, others were doing the same thing. So we've contributed a, a great deal in terms of hard science facts about that, and including the transfer of heat into the tissue, which is critical if you're working with either soft tissue or, or hard tissue because you don't want to damage what's going on. Right. And the second of the three, of course, was coming up with very efficient ablation of carious tissue or sound enamel or sound dentin for that matter. And thirdly, and this was really, I think, the thing that I'm most proud of personally, is the ability of very specific laser wavelengths to alter the minerals near the surface of the tooth and inhibit the progression of demineralization. And there's a, a laser on the market now, has been for a few years, that just recently got FDA clearance for that very purpose. And that was my dream of 40-something years uh, that that situation would be reached. I guess that's my point. It, um, I'm aware of the um, the FDA clearance that you're talking about for the inhibition of demineralization in enamel. And it, it would seem like, despite how... Uh, beneficial this effect is and how simple it would be to achieve 
I just, it's not, I got, I don't know. Is it not sexy enough? I, I don't like all of a sudden everybody's so interested in removing veneers. Well, you know, big deal, but well, what if, what if we could, uh, you know, in, increase the resistance to uh, acid attack? C can you maybe explain in very simple terms? Uh, you're, you're talking about, I think, pretty sure CO2 laser, uh, exactly how and, and what uh, you can do to achieve the effect that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I sure can. But perhaps before that, I do that, if you don't mind, I'll pick up on a comment you just made uh, about not sexy enough and people wanting to remove veneers or do whatever. Back in the 70s, when I first uh, had been in this uh, arena, particularly in the Kerry's arena, uh, we'd worked out the mechanism of dental decay together with a, with a few other people in the Netherlands and in the U.S., and I made a comment at a meeting that, you know, we, we know the mechanism of dental caries now. It's going to be very easy to solve that problem. And shoot, my work is done. Now, 40 years later, my work is still not done because the industry as a whole, I talk about dentistry as an industry, has not picked up on prevention to anywhere near the same extent we would like to see. And part of that, particularly in this country, is the way that dentistry is funded by funding procedures, restorative procedures, reparative procedures, rather than funding prevention. And in the, the medical world, they've now embraced to a large extent prevention. And what I've done the last probably 20 years is try and push for that to happen in dentistry. So having said that, how would such a laser work? And uh, it's very simple in concept. It's very complicated. It took us 30 years to get the right parameters, so it's not trivial. If you have a wavelength that is absorbed by the mineral very efficiently, that laser light is turned into heat, and the heat transforms the mineral. So the mineral in our teeth and bones is what we call a carbonated hydroxyapatite. It has calcium, phosphate, carbonate, hydroxyl groups, fluoride, and a bunch of other things as well. The big deal in enamel is you've got about 3% of the mineral is carbonate, and it's like an Achilles heel or like a weak member of a football team. The strength of the team is dependent upon the weakest member. So if we could get rid of the weak member, then we make a much stronger, chemically stronger mineral. So if you take any laser other than a carbon dioxide laser, the mineral will not absorb that wavelength. If you take a 10.6 micron carbon dioxide laser, which is the most common, it's right on the edge of the absorption band of phosphate. So you have to really ramp up the energy in order for that to be effective. If you take a 9.3 or a 9.6 micron wavelength, that is very efficiently absorbed by the phosphate. And with a very low input, you can heat the tissue very rapidly to 800 degrees, 1,000 degrees, 2,000 degrees for a few microseconds. And if you match your pulse duration with the relaxation time, you'll get very efficient ablation and very efficient melting. But you don't even need the melting. You just need the transformation to that 1,000 times less soluble mineral. So that's how it works. It's actually pretty sexy. It's uh, amazing. But uh, <laughs> okay. in terms of the dentist, you know, our graduates coming out of UCSF were coming out with debts of $300,000 and you got to pay the bills. 
So you have to do procedures that you can charge for or you get it reimbursed for. It's much more complicated than saying, hey, I would love to inhibit dental caries from progressing with high-risk individuals. And I've spent the last uh, 25 years developing risk assessment for caries and the Canberra process and whatever, uh, which works really well. But the adoption of that has been pathetic uh, because the reimbursement's not there. You know, that that's un really, really unfortunate just because I, I'm aware of, of what you, you're talking about. And that was one of the, the big challenges is that once docs understood that <laughs> what you're trying to do is eliminate the the disease they didn't see the, the you know it, it you know in in some cases it comes down to the money and it when but what what we saw as clinicians was that when a patient would understand that hey if you're going to do this work on me and you're telling me that it's not going to break down in a couple of years like everything else in my mouth is always broken down I will invest in that. And the acceptance to treatment plans skyrocketed once we instituted Canberra. But it's it's not an easy, you know, point A to point B, unfortunately, but the, the benefits were um, outrageous. I mean, the, the patients were happy. They got their work done. They had the work done that they've always wanted to, but were afraid to do because they figured it would just be a waste of time and money because my mom lost her teeth when she was 40 and my dad lost his teeth when he was 30. And it's just this, this perpetual cycle that didn't have to continue. And I, I, I'm getting this sense from both the uh, changing the mineral content on the teeth as well as the Canberra. Um, I, I do have a question, and it just from my own ignorance, I, I'm aware that you're able to change the uh, or have this effect on smooth surfaces and self-cleansing surfaces. Does this also work on occlusal surfaces uh, with enamel? Uh, in fact, that's a really good question because our thinking 40 years ago was that occlusal surface was going to be the main thing to work with because of the contamination, the, the plaque that gets jammed in there, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really the main aim, or was the main aim and still is, of this technology. It works on the occlusal surfaces and it works in the pits and fissures and surrounding cusps. Uh, it can be done very quickly. And interestingly enough, if you combine the laser therapy with fluoride therapy, you get a double whammy. It's the effects are essentially additive, and it's really amazing. And just to pick up on what you said about uh, patient acceptance, the biggest issue is having dentists like yourself get on board so that they can persuade their patients to get on board and even pay extra for what they're doing, which is great in a practice where you're dealing with uh, middle to higher socioeconomic patients. In a Medicaid practice, it's, it's a non-event obviously. And th that's a, a huge issue right there. So what you've said is very interesting. And I've observed this with several of my friends and actually many of my graduates over the years that doing preventive work, and this comes back to how we first met at a minimally invasive dentistry meeting, it's a practice builder. And every dentist that I know who's embraced this, including my significant other, who's been doing Canberra since before Canberra was invented, uh, it, it's 
builds their practice, builds her practice. And people come word of mouth. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, really. It's almost a little bit counterintuitive, which makes it uh, a little more challenging to um, to, to describe. Uh, kind of also on the the laser topic, I believe that you've uh, you and your team have had uh, a huge impact in the the science behind Carrie's detection. Is that right? Yes, that that's absolutely true. And as uh, Dan Fried and grew and matured and eventually uh, moved from Rochester out to San Francisco with me. As his mentor, we, we had several discussions, and it, it's always interesting. Again, it's human nature. I've uh, become a great observer of human nature over the years. What, what one must do with a younger faculty member is basically carve out areas that, that they can now lead. And the, the carries detection side of it was a big thing that we agreed that Dan Fried would lead. And he's done some amazing work with carries detection, uh, especially in the infrared region. And of course, you can't see infrared light, but you can use infrared detectors. And once we understood that infrared light basically was transmitted by sound enamel and uh, scattered and whatever, it was possible to come up with non-ionizing radiation infrared detection technology that could be used over and over as many times as you want to detect decay and demineralization. So Dan has run with that uh, big time. Wow. You know, during the course of our discussion, it has occurred to me that, um, and you might not agree just because I know who you are, but uh, your contributions to dentistry, cariology, laser dentistry, and, and other areas I have to feel like it rivals the work of, uh, you know, people we hold uh, in high esteem like G.V. Black. Um, you know, yeah, he came up with the with the uh, the types of cavity preparations, but the actual real profound uh, nature of your work, um, I applaud you and I, I thank you for for the contributions that you have made. Well, well thank you. And, uh, you know, I can't really take credit for it. Uh, I can take credit for having a team and building a team of really bright people, and we've made a contribution. It's in several contributions. Interestingly enough, at, at the beginning of our conversation, uh, we were talking about as one retires and moves away, and you know, I've moved away from the laser arena. I haven't been going to Academy of Laser Dentistry meetings for some time. People forget forget who you are and what you are. And if you take GV Black. Uh, one of his major thrusts back in the early 1900s was preventive dentistry. Go back and read his information. Yes. You'll see that he was a proponent of preventive dentistry. But what he's known for is restorative dentistry, extension for prevention, et cetera. And uh, the prevention pieces disappeared. And I'm hopeful that maybe when I'm gone, some little remnant of what I've spent almost 50 years doing will will remain. I, I don't think you have much to worry about. Um, at this point in time, we're 50 years on from where you've started. Have we progressed to the point that you thought we would 50 years ago? And I'm speaking specifically to like lasers and cariology. I think we've we've come a long way. We have a very good understanding now of the caries process. We have an excellent understanding of how lasers can be used in all aspects of dentistry. Unfortunately, uh, the science is well ahead 
of human acceptance and commercialization of much of what we've learned. And if you take the, the work that I started in December 1980, uh, it, it wasn't until about not even 10 years ago that that work was picked up by a company and commercialized in spite of having talked to, and you were with me on some occasions, yes. talking to various companies who looked at me as though I was somebody from outer space. And I would say to them, look, you've got the wrong wavelength here. And I was like the witches of Salem. I was uh, thrown out of and said, you know, you, you dare not criticize us. So the science is there and the implementation of it and the incentivization, if that's a good word, uh, through the insurance companies is still far from in place. And uh, it's very difficult to try and make that change. The science has progressed amazingly to in-depth understandings that some of the microbiology that's going on now is absolutely beyond anything we could have ever, ever dreamed of. We haven't even talked on that subject of my contributions in that area. So. Uh, what's going on now is providing an amazing understanding of the biofilm and how to work with it. And we all think about changing the mineral and fluoride, but you know, if the bacterial challenge is high enough, it will override all of that good work. So caries is a complex process and we have to deal with the bacteria as well as dealing with the mineral. Agreed. Uh, th there's enough in uh, enough knowledge in your your brain that we, we could do this several times over and still not cover uh, everything that's in there. Um, I, I would ask you. So from this point forward, uh, what would be your your thoughts or dreams or expectations for how we would move forward in the field of lasers in dentistry? Maybe into the future. Looking into the future, I think. And I've I've said this, and I'm a bit of a punster over the years. You know, the the future is bright, and we just need to shine the light on what we should do best, and to support the companies that are bringing out products. And unfortunately, the really really smart uh, laser people for the hard tissue side are very expensive, and they have to be because that's the the cost of producing the laser. But probably most importantly is to somehow get the insurance companies on board to support and pay for some of the procedures. Now, if you're doing a restorative procedure, okay, then you get paid for doing a cavity prep. But, and I don't know how to do this. I've tried and failed. So in terms of lasers for the future, uh, I would love to see every dental office with one or more lasers doing soft tissue, hard tissue, preventive, restorative, the whole thing, painless dentistry, detecting early without using x-rays, all of the technology is out there. And I could see the dental office of the future, Dr. Walensky, laser dentist extraordinaire with the gadgets, putting them all into practice and being paid for doing it. You know, un unfortunately, we could change the topic to photobiomodulation and have the exact same outcomes because they're too uh, using, uh, you know, just like changing the, the, the hardness of a tooth and, and making it less susceptible in the same way we're using wavelengths at very low powers, very low energies to 
facilitate healing, wound healing, and, and decreasing pain. But yet the question always comes back to how do we pay for this? And until I think we can answer that question in a lot of different areas, we're going to be stuck to those who, like me, like you, who are doing it because we know it's the right thing to do and it, it's the best thing for our patients. Uh, but you're not going to get the, the masses on board until we have a mechanism for reimbursement. Right. And, you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned at all, I mentioned very briefly, is I had a collaboration with colleagues in Israel for a number of years, including uh, laser interactions with the biofilm. And we did some very interesting work with blue light and other chemical entities, which was very promising. It turns out that the funding agency doesn't fund uh, clinical studies, so it all stopped there. But it, it's in the literature, and that would be what I was talking about before, interacting with the bacteria and the biofilm, as well as with the hard tissue, put those two together and you've got it. And your photobiomodulation for healing, all of that is technologically there. Yes, I agree. Up until now, I've been doing all the um, asking of questions. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to cover? That I wanted to cover? Well, I, a message. I think... <laughs> I, this is John Featherstone's words of wisdom from the pulpit. Words of wisdom from the pulpit. Uh, Christmas Eve, 1980. I was engrossed in doing the first experiments that we ever did with hard tissue laser interactions. My then wife and family were at home expecting me to be there to celebrate Christmas Eve with them. I was not. Uh, that marriage eventually fell apart. I went on to a second marriage, which eventually fell apart. And now I've got it right this time round. And one of my messages is, don't forget, don't get so engrossed in your dentistry or your science or both that you forget human interactions. And now that I've retired and have more time, I'm spending a great deal of my time with family. I've just come back from uh, New Zealand, spending time with my elderly ailing brother, uh, who I've not spent much time with for many years. And I'm heading up to Tahoe tomorrow to spend time with my son and his family there. My significant other flies in from New York, and then we go back to New York to spend time with the grandkids there. So work-life balance is, is really critical. I, I've had a wonderful life and uh, continue to do so, thank goodness. My health is holding up really well. Uh, so just re remember the people around you and human-human interactions. Science is not everything. You know, your your last two minutes were definitely the most inspiring of this entire conversation. And um, I, I guess in a punish way, um, human interactions are greater than laser tissue interactions. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate uh, that you bring brought that up because I, I too followed a similar path and probably for the same reasons. So it's and and if it's if it's happened to me, it's it's happened to a lot of other people. so i'm I'm hoping that on a number of different areas, uh, people will be inspired by your words. and um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, and I guess I do know that you travel a, a tremendous amount and it's for the right reasons. So please join us next time 
as we continue to explore the fascinating world of lasers in dentistry and the people who make it happen here on the Laser 101 podcast. <laughs>